0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: today to mark the passing of a month since his country was invaded by russia ukraine's president volodymyr zelensky made a direct
0: appeal to the world show you're standing Come with Ukrainian symbols to support Ukraine, to support freedom, to support life. Come to your squares, your streets, make yourselves visible and heard. Say that people matter, freedom matters, peace matters,
2: Ukraine matters.
1: Ukraine puts on a defiant front, holding the capital Kiev and in some areas pushing back Russian troops. But as the port city of Mariupol lies flattened, and the civilian death toll continues to rise, Ukraine's call for Western assistance is a desperate, urgent one. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what more should the West do to help Ukraine? Today, NATO and European leaders gathered in Brussels for an extraordinary set of summits to debate what to do next. Tougher sanctions will inflict more pain on Vladimir Putin, and extra battle groups will bolster Europe's eastern flank. The talks are also a symbolic show of Western unity, resilient since the war broke out. But can the momentum be maintained? Later, I'll be talking about that to The Economist's deputy editor, Edward Carr. But my first guest is Marie Ivanovich, the former US ambassador to Ukraine. While in post, she fought an ingrained culture of corruption, incurring the wrath of oligarchs and officials. But it was powerful enemies in Washington who ended her time in Kiev. In 2019, she was recalled by Donald Trump, amid claims that she was disloyal to the White House. Yovanovitch's testimony was later key to the inquiry that led to the former president's first
2: impeachment trial. Ukrainians who preferred to play by the old corrupt rules sought to remove me. What continues to amaze me is that they found Americans willing to partner with them and working together, they apparently succeeded in orchestrating the removal of a U.S. ambassador. How could our system fail like this?
1: I wanted to hear her reflections on how a new White House administration was supporting Ukraine and how much further... It should go. Marie Jovanovich, welcome to The Economist Asks.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Ukraine is a country
1: you've worked in for a number of years. It's a place you care about very much. What is it like to watch the war spilling out uh, across the country with such devastating consequences?
2: Devastating is the right word, and it's kind of an overused word right now, but it's, it's about the only one I can think of. When the war started, Although we could see it coming, it was almost unimaginable that it would come. And then on the 24th, when it came, I thought, you know, everybody I know has a target on their back. But now, as we are seeing this war of devastation and destruction, of extermination, as President Zelensky calls it, everybody in Ukraine has a target on their back. It doesn't matter if you're five years old or 85 years old. That is a terrible thing.
1: The West has held together reasonably well in terms of a response uh, to the crisis, perhaps better than some feared. But how would you assess the reaction in, in terms of how actively helpful, how impactful it is on Ukraine?
2: The first point is I completely agree with you. I think the West has held together. And that was one of the strategic miscalculations, one of many, that Vladimir Putin made when he chose this war And I think that's due to the diplomacy of the Biden administration, as well as the diplomacy of the other countries of Europe that are all coming together because they recognize that this is a challenge and a crisis like no other, and we need to stand together, and we are. In terms of the assistance going to Ukraine, I think it's phenomenal. And you can see the Ukrainians are making good use of the equipment that we are sending them, and they are having some military success. And so I think it's going to be incumbent upon the Alliance and others to continue backfilling that supply that is being used right now to such good effect.
1: Well, let's get into that a bit more if we could. President Biden in Europe this week to meet with NATO and EU leaders. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba told us at The Economist this week that the ability to prevail over Russia rests on Ukrainian stamina. That seems to be, thankfully, a given and heroically so. Weapons supplied and Western sanctions. Now, in in terms of what has been contributed, it is clearly a lot. We've seen Joe Biden committing an additional $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. And yet there are bigger ticket items that are either running out or have been withheld. Might we be kidding ourselves that it's
2: enough? I think the Biden administration has done a great job of trying to calibrate that very narrow lane of what would not widen the war but would be important for Ukraine, perhaps even decisive for Ukraine to have. We are now providing Ukraine with all sorts of equipment that we wouldn't have ever imagined providing them with a year ago or even six months ago. So as facts change on the ground, we need to evaluate and react accordingly.
1: But aren't the facts, given that, that this looks like we're going to go into a, a war which could be attrition or it could simply be pulverizing towns and cities in the way we've seen in Mariupol, that this fine line, as you, as you put it, that uh, the Biden administration in the West is, is walking, you know, we, we may have to take more risks. There is a lot of ruling out. We've heard President Biden is not going to send troops. He's not going to implement a no-fly zone. He won't send uh, planes to Poland or approve these the, the by Poland uh, of MiG jets. You can see why from the Ukrainian perspective, that's a lot of no's.
2: So I think we shouldn't be ruling anything out. That doesn't mean that we do it now or ever. But let's not rule things out and let's you know, keep on readjusting as the situation changes that's my view, that we need to provide a robust response to Vladimir Putin's war of choice, because there is risk in providing assistance. We all recognize that, and we are calibrating that risk. But there is also risk to not acting robustly enough, because Vladimir Putin is a man who only understands strength. If we do not react sufficiently strongly I think that carries risk as well because he is emboldened and he keeps on going. That's what the history of that part of the world has shown us. It's a very, very difficult job. I mean, this is a challenge like no other I've seen in my in my career.
1: If there was one thing that you would do that is not currently being done, what would it be?
2: I think we need to keep on looking at how we're handling intelligence matters. I think the Biden administration, in terms of sharing intel publicly, is extraordinary and um, has really set the Russians, I think, on their back foot? Are we doing enough and are we doing it fast enough? I think that would be the first thing. We need to keep on flowing in anti-air, anti-rocket, anti-ship, which crucially has not been done. We saw Mariupol being shelled by uh, Russian vessels that are in the Sea of Azov. We need to look at this and we need to look at, you know, defense systems that protect the skies. Let's look at
1: sanctions in a a bit more detail and where we've ended up on that. One, do you believe that sanctions are an effective tool? You know the the region well. You know the impact of what happens uh, economically on Vladimir Putin. There is a call by Poland's prime minister for a total trade ban. What's your view on how far sanctions should go?
2: I think we need to keep on looking at this issue because uh, Vladimir Putin is getting billions of dollars When he's selling energy to Europe and to other countries around the world, I saw that there was a proposal of food for oil. So could you allow Russia to export its energy and only draw down on that that money for humanitarian purposes? I mean, that might be that might be one solution.
1: You mentioned energy uh, and the pain of that falls largely on European democracies, doesn't it? Which is why we've seen governments, Germany foremost, who are changing their stance on Russia and much more assertive, but when it comes to to sanctions that affect energy supply, they're much more nervous.
2: I think one of the things that we're trying to do is get more energy from the U.S. and other countries to Europe. But I think, you know, the formulation of whether it's uh, food for oil or, or something like that, that would mean that Germany and Italy could continue to import oil and they would pay into some sort of a fund where Russia could only draw down on it for humanitarian purposes. So hopefully that disproportionate pain that you're referring to would be somewhat alleviated in in that kind of a formulation. I mean, I'm not a sanctions expert, but when I saw that proposal this morning, it, it seemed like something that we should explore further.
1: It's a sort of neat solution in some ways, although it obviously depends on Vladimir Putin being prepared to accept it. We need to see that he does. Let's look at red lines and the whole idea of red lines. And I wondered what your view was of President Biden's statement that there are clear signs that Russia is preparing a false flag attack which could pave the way for it to use chemical and biological weapons and that that terrible prospect. Would their use constitute a red line for the Biden administration?
2: President Biden has said that if Russia uses chemical weapons, uh, that there would be an enormous price to pay. I hope that President Putin understands that in a way that he has not seemed to understand in the past. In a way, can you blame
1: President Putin for not understanding that statement? Because I'm not sure that I do. What is a high price to pay? What does a red line mean? We know that we're in the context, however we got here, but we're in the context where previous red lines, uh, one in Syria over the use of chemical weapons, uh, wasn't enforced uh, by then by President Obama. So if President Putin may well choose to not understand that it it is a clear message
2: for the reason that it isn't particularly clear. That was the formulation, or something akin to it, that President Biden used about economic sanctions, and I think that was fully uh, revealed to Vladimir Putin. You know, if he wants to recreate the Soviet Union, he's doing a great job of it in Russia. The line's in the street, the stock market's been closed, the ruble is worth a penny. I mean, the list goes on. So if I were Vladimir Putin, I wouldn't want to test this proposal. And I think it's important to remember that Putin, Russia, is the aggressor? We cannot let them sort of set the conditions for this war. He is the aggressor, and he needs to be stopped.
1: There is, of course, the the threat that I think people find most difficult to deal with—that the war in Ukraine could escalate to the nuclear threshold. What would be an effective deterrent to the Kremlin to not consider the use of nuclear weapons? There's been some suggestive hinting and playing. With that idea by the Kremlin, how seriously
2: do you take it? Nuclear weapons are the third rail. It's terrifying that a world leader would consider using nuclear weapons. But the Russian military doctrine includes nuclear weapons as another weapon in its arsenal, which I think for the other nuclear powers is not the case. There's the the hinting and the winking and the nodding. You know, is that uh, an effort to play with our heads and, and really get at our insecurities, or is it the weapons that Vladimir Putin is going to reach for? I have to say that while Putin has miscalculated greatly the unity of the West, the resistance in Ukraine, the abilities of his own military, I guess my hope remains, and of course famously people have said hope is not a policy, but my hope remains that he and the people around him would not go to nuclear weapons, because he has to know that Russia is not the only nuclear power out there. Hope is not a policy, but it's
1: also something we need to hang on to if we're to find a a way out of this war or this to find a way that induces Russia to come out of this war.
2: Do you have faith in the diplomatic track at this stage? I do. I mean, look at what it's accomplished so far. The unity of the West. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that the West was falling apart, that NATO had seen its best days. And it turns out that, in fact, the West can be unified by a common threat, which right now, unfortunately, is Russia, that NATO can act with unity. And so I think that is the result of diplomacy but what does a deal look like? What does a peace deal look like between Ukraine and Russia? I think that's up to the Ukrainians. To Ukraine sets the terms. I think we all want to help. I think it's important that Ukraine set the terms. Uh, we saw what happened in 2014 and 2015 when the Normandy powers produced two agreements, the Minsk agreements, that Russians did nothing to fulfill. The Ukrainians did some things to fulfill but they felt was incredibly unfair and, if fully implemented, would undermine Ukrainian sovereignty. And I think the result is of a peace agreement that was arrived at at the barrel of a gun, basically. The result is that here we are again in a far more devastating war. So I think it's important, even as the U.S., Europe tries to help Ukraine move forward on the diplomatic track, that Ukraine sets the terms. And I think it's also important to remember that Ukraine is a democracy and it will matter what the people of Ukraine think about that peace agreement. It will matter hugely. And in fact, Zelensky has already said that he will hold a referendum to approve whatever final peace deal there is.
1: I wonder how you think the conflict is shaping or reshaping the transatlantic relationship. It's had it's, its bumps even uh, since President Biden came in, and we might turn to his predecessor briefly in just a, a moment. You sound as if you're optimistic that the West, not only countries geographically in the West, but countries who are part of the alliance against uh, Russia in this war are pulling together well. But does it change something more profound about relationships between the US and Europe?
2: I think the short answer is yes. And I think we're not gonna know what that looks like for a while. I think this is a hinge moment in history. We're gonna look back at this as February 23rd and everything that was before, and then February 24th and the invasion of Ukraine and everything that came after. It's clear that we need to modernize our institutions, our alliances for the 21st century. I mean, we've been talking about this for a number of years. But, you know, it's hard to actually get the focus on it, right? But I think now with the realization of the threat emanating from Russia and that set of issues is not going to go away tomorrow or next year. That will be with us for a while. That's perhaps the crisis moment that will invigorate the reforming, rebuilding, recreating that hopefully will give new impetus to the alliance. I was just thinking as you were speaking there
1: that your own career and the ups and downs of your ambassadorial career in in Ukraine in a sort of microcosm told us perhaps a bigger story than it appeared at the time. And this was, of course, in the, the Trump administration. You were summarily removed from office as the ambassador. You then gave evidence in the impeachment case against Donald Trump. And the one thing that I sort thought looking back to that, that very unbenign cat's cradle of interrelations be- between Trump, Putin, and the way that Ukraine was uncomfortably in the middle of, what do you think it was in Putin that, that seemed to inspire Donald Trump's admiration?
2: It's pretty clear President Trump admired strongmen, uh, not just President Putin, although I think he was the first among equals. He seemed to really envy Putin's ability to basically do whatever he wanted, not to have to deal with the legislature, the Duma in Russia, just do whatever he wanted. And I think that's something that President Trump would have liked in his own presidency. You've said rightly,
1: saying that hope isn't a a policy, but I would guess because of of your knowledge of the country and also your real fondness for it and for the region, and of course, like many of us, for Russia, the Russia that exists and will exist beyond Vladimir Putin, that you must have some hope that this could end and end quickly and as well as possible. What does that look like?
2: Honestly, if it ends well and quickly, that would mean that the Russian military falls apart completely. I mean, we've seen a lot of failures, but they are still out there and not to be discounted. They have a lot to throw at Ukraine still, and they seem to be doing it on a daily basis. But that the Ukrainian military can seize the advantage and push the Russian invader out of the country. That would be great. I'm not sure that's the most likely outcome. I see, unfortunately, that this will grind on for quite some time. And the West cannot lose focus, because, yes, this is a war of Russia against Ukraine, but it is also a war of tyranny against freedom. And freedom has to prevail. Marie Yovanovich, thank you very
1: much indeed for joining us.:
2: Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our discussion.
1: The former ambassador set out what's at stake in the war, but what are the practicalities the West can bring to bear to help Ukraine and deliver on its promises? That's something our deputy editor, Edward Carr, has been pondering as NATO and European leaders gather in Brussels. Thanks for joining me, Edward. Nice to be here. President Biden came to Europe saying that he's prepared to roll out more measures there will be more sanctions. There will be more arms supplied. Has he
0: hit the right balance? Or is he a bit unspecific? Well, the really interesting thing is that initially, NATO and the West were rather underwhelming. Then you saw this groundswell of support for the Ukrainians as it became apparent that actually there was a real war here, and particularly Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, emerged as this, rather remarkable figure. And that really galvanised popular and public opinion in the West. And you saw governments sort of discover that there was something to do here. They responded. But a month into the war, you start to feel it's just not quite enough.
1: What do you think Biden wants to hear from European leaders while he's on the continent? Uh, and what's he really getting? And what, what might the frustrations be?
0: I think this really starts actually with the Ukrainians. Because they're the people who have the sense of what they need to prosecute this war. And they're very clear they want extra sanctions on energy. And some countries are not doing it. And they're telling us they want weapons, particularly offensive weapons and weapons supplies now. And they're worried they're not going to get them fast enough.
1: President Zelensky of Ukraine keeps making his pleas for a no-fly zone. He's not backing off on that. He sounds dissatisfied it's not being met. And it's really Joe Biden in the way.
0: Yes, on that he is. Biden's tried to draw really clear lines. He's saying there will be not an inch of NATO territory taken, but at the same time, he's not going to have NATO troops directly fighting Russian troops in Ukraine. And a no-fly zone requires that because it requires the American Air Force to clear out ground defence systems, which are not just in Ukraine, but also in in Russia and Belarus. And it also requires enforcing in the air, which which could require shooting down Russian planes. So I think a no-fly zone leads to the sort of engagement that Biden's ruled out. I'm not sure it accomplishes that much because a lot of the damage is being done by Russian artillery and Russian missiles.
1: One potential dividing line on sanctions is that it's Europe that's taking the strain on rapidly rising energy prices and where questions of replacing supply are much harder than they are in the US. Do you get the impression that Washington and Europe are as unified on this front as they set out to be?
0: I think you're entirely right they're not. And it's very clear that that in Europe, Germany in particular, is putting up big obstacles. Everyone was surprised when Schultz cancelled Nord Stream 2. He got out in front by doing that. And then everyone was also surprised when Germany seemed to be more willing to embrace sanctions than people expected. But on energy, Germany's dug in its heels. It's refusing to include more Russian banks. It's ruling out further energy sanctions. Biden has said he wants them and Germany doesn't seem willing to give them. Now, this is not a fixed scenario here. You're seeing people die by their thousands in Mariupol. Who knows what will come next in Ukraine? And as people's sense of outrage at Russian atrocities increases, the pressure to do more will grow. So this is not static, but right now Germany is refusing to go further.
1: And how are you reading the diplomacy on this? You've got a a new government in Germany, with Chancellor Scholz, not a very experienced foreign policy government. You have President Biden, whatever the criticisms of him, he does know his foreign policy and security policy inside out over many decades. What do you think his approach will be when the, the doors are, are shut and they're huddled around on, on sofas? Will it be to try to strong on reluctant European important powers like Germany to do more? Or will it be to simply say, well, you know, this is your moment in history. You have to decide yourselves how you step up.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that Biden's chosen to come to Europe now. And to me, it's a signal that he thinks he needs to do some personal diplomacy to galvanize people yet again, to get them ready for the second month of war, because this war could drag on. I hope it doesn't, but it could drag on. And if it is, you're going to need a lot of resolve in NATO. So how will he do it? He'll do it in the Biden way, which is relationships, talking not too far out in front of the rest of NATO, trying to keep the appearances of unity, which is incredibly important. Remember that both Russia and China are counting on disunity in NATO. Their bet is that as this goes on, because Europe's paying the price in energy, because Europe's got the refugees, that it's going to start splitting. And Biden needs to keep that coalition together.
1: President Biden warned this week that there was a real chance of chemical weapons being used in this conflict in Ukraine by the Russian side. He seemed to want to get that rather terrifying thought out there. What does he want to achieve by it, do you think?
0: I think it's yet more of this rather innovative use of intelligence that happened before the war. By getting the intelligence out there really fast, what he does is rob Putin of the ability to surprise and also to warn him about next steps. So this reference to chemical and biological weapons that Putin might use is a way of saying to him, we know what you're up to, we're watching you. And if Putin tries to do it, Putin can't not just pretend that it was Ukrainian labs managed by the Americans all along. Well, he will pretend that, but he won't succeed.
1: Biden, then he went into kind of Biden speak where he seemed to be threatening that there would be some terrible response to that. He didn't indicate what it might be. Do you think that is prudent?
0: Yes, I do. For me, chemical weapons are terrible weapons, but they don't kill more people than already being killed in Mariupol, where where people are dying in in their thousands and potentially their tens of thousands. But they break a major taboo. And since escalation is all about breaking taboos right up to the ultimate taboo, i.e. the use of a nuclear weapon, I think that... NATO and the West need to send a very, very clear signal if Putin uses a chemical weapon. And he needs to do that to stop him going on to the next stage.
1: Vladimir Putin has waved around the threat of a nuclear strike in Ukraine. That's a particularly worrying concern for leaders to have to discuss. How should they handle this? Because obviously the, the use of the word... Coming on top of that uh, threat of the use of of chemical weapons does alarm people, including those who are very committed to helping Ukraine.
0: We need to be clear here that, that the odds of the use of a nuclear weapon are still low. We aren't about to see a nuclear strike, I believe, but they are a lot higher than they were just a month ago, and they are worryingly high. So far, there's no evidence of Russian nuclear forces actually being poised to strike, However, he is clearly using language that's supposed to intimidate an alarm. The correct response to that, I believe, is for the West not to overreact, not to raise its nuclear awareness, not to get into a situation where the possibility of a mistake is raised, but to remain calm and clear and adamant that the use of a nuclear weapon as an offensive weapon, unprovoked, is completely unacceptable.
1: And how confident are you that Western unity, which has been something a lot of people thought was rather good that came out of the early stage of this crisis, that that will last as the war goes into a second month?
0: I'm worried about it. I'm worried about it because people who are fired up by this in European public, they start perhaps to Drift off and think of other things. Governments become clear about the costs of their policies. Inflation's a problem. The standard of living's a problem. Energy costs are a problem. And the call will be coming from Ukraine all the time to do more. They need to win this battle. They know the more the West is involved, the better it is for them. So I think the pressure on this coalition will not relent, it will grow. But it's very, very important for the future of the West, for the future of Ukraine, that it does hold together.
1: Edward, thanks very much indeed for joining us on a busy day. Thank you, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think as the conflict spirals onwards. Will Western resolve hold? What would you want more of from our leaders at this crucial time? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. I discussed with Marie Ivanovich the demands that Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba set out in an exclusive interview with The Economist. He spelled out why his country fears that European resolve is faltering as war drags on. You can read that article online as well as all of our coverage on the NATO summits in the shadow of war in Ukraine. The only way to enjoy full access to our journalism is to become a subscriber. To sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.